Whether you're a journalist, an activist, a business person, there are so many ways that people can contribute to making this world a better place. And we just need more people to, to think that way because it's the only way that there's going to be actual real lasting change. Hello, I'm Olivia Cummings, and on this podcast, I'd like to introduce you to the people who inspire me in my life and work as a jeweler, designer, and founder of Cleopatra's Bling. Sophie McNeil is a journalist for Human Rights Watch, covering everything from the most headline-grabbing events to some of the forgotten stories of our time. We really need the Australian authorities to do their homework and put these rules in place so that we can make the right decisions, businesses here and consumers. After she shared her insights with me about the state of journalism in the world today, I also better understood what I could do as a news consumer to help. This podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri country. And I pay my respects to all First Nations listeners. Hi, my name is Sophie McNeil. I'm the Australia researcher for Human Rights Watch. So I uh, research and advocate for better human rights in Australia. And also uh, I advocate for Australia to have better, more humanitarian focused uh, foreign policy to centre human rights in our foreign policy as well. So I'm a former journalist. Um, I left working at the ABC's Four Corners program and being a correspondent in the Middle East because I just wanted to have more impact. So this this role with Human Rights Watch is one of the world's biggest human rights organisations really uh, was a dream job for me to to basically, I I call it journalism without the bullshit. So I get to solely focus on human rights and and just not just tell you um, about the bad stuff that's happening, but talk about the solutions and then work with people in government and business and community to actually try and see the change that we need. Incredible. Maybe on that note, you could also give us a little bit of an introduction to what Human Rights Watch, what they do, because I know that they're not a government, you know, it's private, but, you know, if you could just give us a little bit of info. Sure. So Human Rights Watch has been around for about 30 years. Um, There's 500 of us working for the organisation all around the world. We're headquartered in New York and we're basically an international watchdog that keeps an eye on human rights situations everywhere from a country like the US that is a democracy but has a lot of uh, issues that that have been quite well documented, you know, to Afghanistan and, and Syria and and Israel and Gaza, um, we, you know, and here in Australia, we call out every government when they commit human rights abuses. And yeah, we don't accept any government funding. It, all our work is run from donations. Um, and yeah, we're, we're a not-for-profit. So basically, I have these 500 amazing colleagues all over the world. M- many of them um, risk their lives to do this work. You know, I have colleagues who are um, from China or Afghanistan who can never potentially return to their homelands, can't speak to their family because of the work that they do and their profile and speaking up for human rights and, and calling out government. So it really is a bit of a calling um, and one that I'm very proud to be part of. Incredible. So did you always know that you wanted to be a journalist from a young age or was it something that came to you later in life? No, it was something 
it came from me pretty early. You know, I grew up in Perth, uh, the most isolated city in the world, and kind of was just fascinated um, by what was going on out there rather than what was happening in the little uh, tiny world that is that is Perth, Western Australia. So as soon as I could, I basically just grabbed a video camera and ran overseas. Um, I worked in East Timor. I kind of, during high school, I sold Fredo frogs to raise <laughs> the money for my hair and borrowed my, uh, yeah, my social science teacher's new video camera and, and made this little documentary, you know, because I wanted to be a journalist, but no one was going to send me anywhere. You know, I was like 15. So I just kind of sent myself places. And I did that for quite a few years until I got my first job at SBS. And uh, all I wanted to do was work in the Middle East. You know, I was kind of, uh, yeah, quite young when the Iraq war happened and uh, was fascinated by that and just horrified seeing what was going on, the, the Palestinian intifada just wanted to go to the region and report. But, you know, I was told by my boss at SBS at the time, like, you're too young, you can't go because I was, you know, um, 19. I just kind of managed to sneak my way into the newsroom because they were looking for someone to shoot something. And I got let in the building and and never left the building, basically. Uh, So I, you know, moved myself to New York and did every story I could there related to the Iraq war and then rocked up in Beirut when I was 20 um, in 2006. And, um, yeah, just set up kind of base in the Middle East was, yeah, still is my love, but I don't, I don't live there anymore. But for, you know, a good kind of decade and a, and a half, it was real, it's been a real passion and fascination of mine. Amazing. You're, sounds like you're a real go-getter from 20 living in Beirut. It's amazing. So how did you decide what area of journalism you wanted to specialise in or was that just your calling and your passion? Um, I think I just, uh, yeah, I'd watch SBS World News and I just was fascinated with the rest of the world, you know, and I all, I read books. There's an amazing um, female journalist called Martha Gellhorn who, you know, just kind of rocked up during World War II and all the blokes were covering things and she'd go and hang out with the women and the children and kind of show you the the human face, the, the suffering of conflict rather than, you know, the boys in their flak jackets hanging out with the fighters and the soldiers, you know, that's never been my approach. So, yeah, I really, I guess, wanted to kind of adopt her similar style and that's what I tried to do in my work was, Conflict affects civilians, but a lot of the mm. time you, you, the stories can be told by those fighting it. Um, I think journalism slowly changing, but, yeah, I definitely would just always be trying to hang out with uh, the women, the children, the old people impacted by by some of the horrors, yeah. Yeah, they're often the people that you don't see on the news a lot of the time. Yeah. And obviously you've mentioned that journalism is slowly changing. How would you say that you navigate your job the communication of controversial or difficult stories in an era with decreasing confidence in press in Australia? Yeah, I mean, that was that was the hard thing, you know, because I had had watched, you know, a, a conflict like East Timor and that had inspired me to go overseas and work as a journalist and people saw those images from East Timor. Um, you know, this famous Australian journalist, John Pill, just snuck in there. He filmed it. He showed the world. You know, the, the world was moved and horrified by the torture that was occurring under Indonesian occupation. You know, they, the UN secured a vote. East Timor voted for its independence. It got free. You know, it's this amazing example of what journalism can achieve, you know, when mm. East Timor did did sit in their new um, parliament um, after they achieved their freedom and independence from Indonesia. They thanked this journalist for what he did. You know, he played a big part in in their liberation. But, you know, the era I became a journalist, you you just had this 24-hour horror on your phone, you know, and people, I think, 
often just wanted to switch off because it was so overwhelming. Um, and I would get frustrated all the time thinking like, I'm showing you what's happening here in Aleppo. Like you, no one seems to care about it. You know, there's war crimes being committed on a daily basis. And yeah, so it is, it, it is, it's a different playing field these days. Yeah, people are overwhelmed with information. They don't know where to look or, or what to choose. So I think personal kind of stories, um, really up close journalism that goes into people's lives and documents that impact and, and cares about people as people um, and isn't afraid to show that you care. I mean, that was always my number one rule in journalism. Like, I'm not a robot. I'm not going to be like, he said this, she said that, you know, I'm going to, you know, my job is to convince you that this is something terrible and that, you know, we should be doing something about it. So, yeah. you know, I guess you could say I was a a big fan of kind of activist journalism, um, you know, trying to actually achieve outcomes, not just tell you about the problems. And it's probably why I left journalism, because I wasn't achieving the impact I wanted. Um, you know, so as I said, my job now is to also try and actually achieve change, not just tell you um, the, the bad things going on in the world. And as you said, where when you entered journalism, that we've been in an era of over saturation and stimulation because of our smartphones and I'm assuming that's what you mean because we've got access to it so readily do you think that people are sort of numbed to the effect of war and the atrocities happening in the world because we're so stimulated I think there's an element of that and I also think people feel powerless so their response is to kind of switch off so mm. I guess what I'm always trying to do is convince them of the impact that one person can have you know I've you know, I mentioned this guy before who helped free East Timor, you know, um, the 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 people I saw on the ground in Syria, like the, the bravest um, people who are just like you and me, you know, like nurses, computer geeks, like all kinds of people just stepped up as part of the Syrian revolution, you know, calling yeah. for democracy and freedom and gave up everything, you know, to be on the right side of history and to fight for freedom for their country. And, yeah, they, they were just no, normal people who just one day had to make a choice, you know, what side of history am I going to be on? And we all have that opportunity, you know, here in Australia, yeah, we don't have a, you know, thank God we don't have um, that kind of situation as the people in Syria face, but yeah, we're facing an incredible climate emergency. You know, Human Rights Watch describes a climate emergency as the biggest global threat to human rights that we've faced in our lifetime. Um, we all have an opportunity to step up and, you know, stop just sharing things on Facebook or Instagram, but actually do something, you know, join a movement, take action. Um, we've just put out a report at Human Rights Watch yesterday, actually, about the horrific inequality that First Nations people face in this country. You know, Indigenous mm. children, 20 times more likely to be incarcerated than non-Indigenous children. Indigenous deaths in custody, a massive jump we had in the rate of deaths last year. So there's so many, you know, environmental issues. There's always something you can find where you can have an impact. And I, I think people just need to be reminded that one person can change the world. You know, look at someone like Greta Thunberg, what she's managed to achieve. So, and it's addictive. Once you do it once, then you get addicted. You want to keep doing it. I imagine. I think also, you know, your average civilian would probably not know where to start or where to go or who to trust in terms of, you know, either giving money or where to put their energy. So I guess that's why you guys are such a great resource for everybody. 
Yeah, and there's so many, you know, little groups across Australia that we work with. You know, we're a big international org that that works on a range of issues. But, yeah, we have all these little local partners that we work mm. with um, across the country on a range of issues that, you know, always they're always looking for supporters or volunteers or, yeah, people who can help or pitch in or, you know, fundraise. So, yeah, there's so many there's an overwhelming choice to to make a difference, but I think if everyone just picks something that they're passionate about, yeah, it, it's often a great way to just, uh, it also lessens your anxiety about things. You know, if you're doing something about it, you don't get as anxious about the world, particularly with climate. Um, yeah. If you're actually joining in efforts to fix things, it's you not only do you become part of a wonderful community and meet great people, but you, you just feel a little bit more at peace because you know you're doing your best. You're doing something yeah. better than nothing. You've written about China's attacks on um, academic freedom in foreign countries. Can you tell us a bit about how Chinese influence extends to overseas institutions? Sure. So I think, you know, we hear a lot about China and Australia and the previous government was pretty good at doing a lot of fear-mongering, you know, and I think people weren't too sure about, you know, what threat does China really pose? Is this just something they kind of make up to scare us and win the election? But the the reality, you know, it's unfortunate they they, um, had that kind of tone because the reality is, is that, you know, the the Communist Party in China is a real concern. Like at Human Rights Watch, it's one of our number one priorities in this region because, you know, this is a autocratic, authoritarian dictatorship that, you know, t- does not give rights to any of its citizens, you know, surveils them, blocks their access to, to any kind of independent information. You know, you can't speak out. You can't, you know, we saw the streets just a, a few weeks ago in early December, we saw brave Chinese citizens come out on the streets um, and, and call for their freedom because they've been locked up so long under the yeah. COVID restrictions. And people were, you know, bundled up and taken away and arrested. And, you know, it's just such a dis dystopian existence there. And what we're concerned about is how China is working to undermine democracy globally. You know, they have a plan and they, you know, they would prefer the world to be run in their way without democracy, you know, without people having a choice about how they live their life. You know, it's a it's a really terrifying authoritarian dictatorship. And we've seen um, people in Hong Kong lose their freedom in the last few years. That was, you know, Hong, young Hong Kongers are just like young Australians. They had many similar rights that we have and just suddenly taken away when Beijing took over control and put their new security laws in. And we're seeing uh, basically China try and um, increase their efforts of foreign interference. So this is when they go into a country like Australia and they try and undermine our democracy. So what we documented is how they were surveilling and harassing and intimidating Chinese dissidents here. A yeah. lot of students at Australian universities um, are from the Chinese mainland, these international students, and, you know, they come here and think, wow, for the first time I can speak freely, I can give give my opinions, say what I think, you know, maybe even criticise the Communist Party or learn about, you know, Tiananmen Square, something like that. And unfortunately what they find is when they come to our unis here, they are actually um, surveilled by other members of their classroom that might report them back to the consulate or the embassy or authorities back home. So despite the fact that they're thousands of kilometres away from the Communist Party in Beijing, they still feel suffocated by the CCP, um, the Chinese Communist Party. So we did a big report and investigation on this because we we were disappointed at how Australian universities were hand, handling this issue. We felt like they were turning a blind eye to it because they're very happy to take the dollars from the Chinese international students but not actually yeah. speak out and confront this harassment and surveillance. So we've been pleased that we've got some quite a good response from some universities. UNSW has um, been working with us. UTS has 
done some great work. Um, but yeah, there's still a lot of work to be done. And it's just, it was just so sad to interview all these young people from China who had such hopes and dreams for their life in Australia. And then, yeah, they, yeah, were left very disappointed and quite scared still here by many elements of this foreign interference and this harassment of people who, you know, who dared criticize the Communist Party. It's just unthinkable. And what sort of threats were they receiving? Yeah, that their criticism would be reported back um, to to authorities. So one young guy I interviewed had spoken out in his WhatsApp group in his at his university to say, you know, I think the people in Hong Kong are brave, you know, and he was like talking about his pro-democratic feelings and someone else was like, you know, I'm going to report you. And uh, he kind of just, you know, he was a bit worried about it, but he didn't really take it too seriously. But when he went back to the Chinese mainland, the authorities confiscated his passport, you know. so. There is real life consequences when here in Australia, institutions don't do their best to kind of lay down a red line and just let let students know, um, you know, you can't engage in that kind of behaviour. You know, Australia is a country where everyone has the right to freely express their opinions. Um, so that was a key issue we had with the unis is they were sweeping this issue under the carpet rather than being really firm and kind of um, making their position clear that such behaviour was unacceptable and that was allowing it to kind of flourish. But, you know, we also had sympathy for the students who were doing the harassment and the reporting because, unfortunately, that's Xi Jinping's China. Like, they don't know any different. You know, you're taught that's yeah. how you get ahead in China, right? So we needed the universities to be more active in in their education to these students to let them mm. know that, no, that's not okay, it's not acceptable. A lot of them, you know, they live in a little bubble. They live in a WeChat bubble where everything's censored, where everyone's surveilled, where you don't have opinions. You don't, you can't be critical of the government. And they don't, you know, they, they didn't understand that things are so different here. So that, yeah, there's a lot that universities need to do to make sure that this doesn't continue, continue to happen. Yeah, I guess it's similar to um, North Korea. You couldn't bring them to Australia and expect them to integrate instantly into our life yeah, after being isolated for so long. Yeah, it's, it is like living in a bubble. It's, it's a hard adjustment. It's incredible. And how has the influence altered our perception of the relationship between China and Australia, do you think? I think people are slowly waking up to, you know, to the reality of, of what is, um, you know, communist China. I think that a lot of people in Australia have learned about um, Xinjiang in the last few years and the treatment of the, the Uyghurs, Uyghur people. Yeah. yeah, this is where, um, you know, over a million people were detained in the northwest of China in, in an area called Xinjiang, um, purely on the basis of their religion. So Uyghurs are Muslims, Chinese Communist Party doesn't, you know, use religion as a threat to their rule. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's the largest incarceration of people on the basis of their religion since the Holocaust, and it's horrifying. And there's thousands of Uyghurs in Australia who can't even call their family, haven't been able to for up to five years now because of this kind of surveillance state and mass detention in Xinjiang. So we we see it as a crime against humanity at Human Rights Watch. That's um, We believe there's enough evidence to make that claim. And we were very pleased that the UN finally also um, in August last year came out with a report that said that they believe that crimes against humanity may be being carried out by the Communist Party in Xinjiang. So we want to see sanctions against Chinese officials involved in these crimes against humanity. And we're disappointed that the Albanese government hasn't put those sanctions in. Um, the Morrison government didn't either. We know they're a bit scared to stand up to Beijing, but, you know, what side of history do we want to be on? You know, we need to hold people accountable mm. when they commit mass human rights abuses, and that's certainly what's happening today in China. And something that stood out in what you just said, you said 
may be committing. This is what the UN reported. So at what point we, would it be considered by them? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like that that just stood out to me because I was like, well, for me, a long time ago it was already they were committing crimes against humanity. So at what point does the UN get on board with that? It's a really good question because, you know, and you've kind of honed in on one of the key problems with, about the UN system is that it can be very slow, you know, it can mm. be very bureaucratic. And, um, you know, sometimes you see the world community come together very quickly, as we saw with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And, mm. yeah, I mean, that was an example, I think, of how the world can work together to highlight, um, you know, a really uh, alarming human rights crisis. But, yeah, we have a lot of countries, international institutions are scared of Beijing and the power that it wields, you know, and there was a vote at the UN in September to, to vote on this report alleging, um, you know, that the crimes against humanity may have been committed. Um, and Indonesia voted against it. You know, that's the world's largest Muslim country. Like Uyghurs were devastated by Indonesia's that's vote. That's super against- shocking. But I guess because of it would have to do with economy and trade. Well, exactly. China, you know, bullies countries. Um, that's their yeah. modus operandi. Like they, you know, they're they're incredibly powerful. And you know, you vote, you vote with Beijing because you know you kind of don't have a choice. That's what they think. And so we want to try and um, you know convince governments that we all, if we all stand up together and call out human rights abuses, then yeah, it's more powerful. And we'll be able to achieve more. So. Yeah, it's but when Australia doesn't sanction Chinese officials in Xinjiang, then it is hard for us to then, you know, say to Indonesia, hey, why did you vote no? You know, I mean, of course we voted yes at the UN, which was great to see, but we're still haven't been brave enough to put these sanctions on. So mm. um a country like Australia should be doing that. And then maybe that will encourage, you know, the Indonesias of our region to 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 also stand with us and call out Beijing. And when you talk about sanctions, could could they be kind of um, localised sanctions, so things coming specifically out of certain areas? Because I do believe that there is sort of essentially, I don't know if I'm using hyperbole, but slave labour essentially in these camps. So by not buying things from that region, could that be sort of an incentive for things to improve versus just an overall sanction yeah, no, totally. And that's what we're, so what we're calling on is specific targeted sanctions on mm. individuals. So on these right. officials who are carrying out these policies so that they can't travel or, you know, have Western bank accounts, that kind of thing, or have family mm. members living in Australia studying and, you know, enjoying those things. But what we also want is Australia to put in new legislation that will designate Xinjiang as a region of concern and have a presumption of forced labour so that businesses yeah. have the onus on them to prove that the goods are made without forced labour because that we believe the risk of forced labour is so high there. So we would, you know, we've been really pleased to see what the US is doing, where they've actually put a ban on goods coming from Xinjiang into the US. The EU has also got new rules and regulations around imports coming from Xinjiang. Again, this is where Australia has been lagging behind Mm. other countries. Not only have we not targeted these individuals with sanctions, we haven't put in specific rules, regulations or laws about imports coming from Xinjiang. So, yeah, that's really alarming. And I worked on an investigation a few years ago um, when I was still at Four Corners where we proved that some of the um, cotton um, that was being purchased, like clothing purchased by um, uh, businesses, including Target in Australia, um, were being made in Xinjiang and that they were being made in very uh, close capacity to these labour camps. You know, we had these satellite images to show the, you know, buses moving like to certain factories from camps. And um, it was really great that after that report came out, 
they announced that they would no longer purchase from that particular supplier. So that's the kind of work mm. that we need. You know, we want the Australian authorities to be, you know, issuing stricter kind of rules and regulations so that businesses start examining their supply chains, you know, rather than it just being a journalist doing it. We need we need the, the government to put those rules in place so that businesses are forced to examine their own supply chains and make sure that they're clean. Yeah, exactly. And also because I can imagine a lot of the business owners that found that out would have been genuinely probably shocked by that, you know, if they had found out through such a report. Yeah, they're looking for advice um, mm. from Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, a lot of Australian businesses, you know, solar panels. Xinjiang is the world's largest producer of solar panels. And a lot of Australians are really worried, like, where are these solar panels coming from? How do we know they're not made in Xinjiang by people in these camps? And so, yeah, we we really need the Australian authorities to do their homework and put these rules in place so that we can, yeah, make the right decisions, businesses here and consumers. Which countries have been particularly um, progressive in regards to this issue with the Uyghur people? Look, the US has certainly led. Um, and, you know, it's hard because people, you know, when the US leads on China, people will be like, oh, it's all just political. You know, the US sees China as a as a threat. But, you know, that's why it's great when you see Canada also put in new rules about goods coming from Xinjiang, the EU, the UK. So, yeah, well, that's we just want Australia to join those efforts because at the moment mm. Australia stands out as lagging behind these other countries in terms of, like, you know, we'll, we'll say, we'll give out strong statements condemning what's happening at Xinjiang. But in terms of concrete steps, we certainly haven't taken them yet. So right. that's really disappointing. I think it's really interesting because I thought about this in COVID when there were a lot of conspiracy theories floating around. Um, and then I sort of started thinking about this a little bit more. And then I read information about ironically, I read information about disinformation and misinformation. So I'm wondering if you could give us a little breakdown of those two things. Sure. So yeah, misinformation um, these days is pretty common. Um, that's false information that's created and it can have an intent to harm, but also it could just be what someone's belief is, you know, it, it it's wrong, it's inaccurate, but it's not being created with an intent to actually kind of fool people um, and, you know, uh, yeah, kind of um, deceive, whereas disinformation is a deliberate effort to deceive. Mm. And it's the kind of effort that we see from, um, you know, I saw it every day when I was working in the Middle East from the Syrian government, from, you know, the Russian um, forces operating in Syria who would just with a straight face be like, oh, you know, we we didn't operate in the skies of Aleppo today. And yet, you know, we had all the video and the photos of, you know, kids murdered by barrel bombs that they had, um, you know, helped helped um, the Assad regime carry out these horrific attacks. So, yeah, it's something you see governments engage in a lot. Um, we see it, though, here in Australia, the fossil fuel industry. You know, they're, they're, they're big um, perpetrators of disinformation, you know, telling us that, they're oh, yeah, we're, you know, net zero, we've got our plans, whilst they're at the same time trying to open up new fossil fuel projects. Um, so, yeah, you, you see it in a whole range of fields. And one thing I found fascinating is how much the disinformation that I had to confront in the Middle East and covering war crimes, how I now have to use those same skills at calling out disinformation, working on the climate emergency. Like it's mm. that same kind of 
vested interest trying to deceive us about what you know the threat is and and who's responsible for it um it's it's incredibly similar and yeah it's scary because these big fossil fuel companies now with the energy crisis they have billions of dollars to use on their disinformation you know whether it's kind of woodside or chevron or santos or shell or bp i mean you know uh exxon it's th- these companies are actively trying to deceive us about the the threat of the climate emergency, who's responsible for it and how quickly we need to act on it. So it's something we all need to be really in tune to. Yeah, I agree. And one thing I wanted to ask you was how, what are some things that Australians can do to counter misinformation or disinformation? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think you do have to be really um, picky about where you get your news from. You know, yes, we all have feeds and you know, we can just kind of get caught scrolling. Um, but no, seek out accurate, reputable sources of your news. You know, listen to the ABC, you know, read The Guardian, read the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, you know, look at the, the New York Times, look at, um, the, you know, the BBC. Like these are, are reputable international organisations that that really do um, rep- report on the facts and, and, and let you know the reality of what's going on. And yeah, there's a a lot of pundits these days who will kind of like tell you their theories or their opinion, but you know, that doesn't cut it these days. We need facts matter so much in today's world, you know? Mm. And uh, I think, yeah, we need everyone to be more selective and more choosy where they get their news from. And uh, yeah, if if you're operating in a circle where people are, are just, you know, thinking, oh, okay, that that happened or that's what they said. Um, yeah, it, it can just, you can somehow contribute to misinformation by sharing things that haven't been verified or don't come from reputable sources. And then you're amplifying the problem. So I think everyone just needs to be conscious of it and, and just think twice before yeah, sharing things or when they want to get some news where they get it from. And what would you say to the people who who would say to you that, these news sources are trying to manipulate us because that's a big thing at the moment, people thinking that the news sources are not legitimate. Yeah, look, it is, you know, an, an issue that people have have lost trust in, you know, the mainstream media. But um, the reality is there are some very good journalistic outlets out there and they, mm. they do tell you um, the, you know, the reality of what's going on. It's not saying that... Uh, other sources can't also be reliable or be accurate, but you have to kind of weigh it up. You know, if the Washington Post, the New York Times, the BBC, the ABC are all saying the evidence shows that war crimes are being committed in Ukraine, you know, but you've found some random kind of Russian website that's saying they're not, then, you know, who are you going to believe? Like you do have to kind of weigh up, weigh up the issues and, and, and you know, make make a decision yourself. I mean, it's part of, of being an adult in today's world, isn't it? It's it's hard, but um, you, you have to learn those skills. You know, critical thinking is one of the most important skills I think that we can, I'm trying to give it to my kids at the moment. And um, yeah, I mean, they watched commercial news here in Perth and my son did a thing at school the other day and they were talking about the the commercial news and and, uh, I was asking him how he answered it because they were talking about bias and what signs of bias you saw in the news. And his response was, well, yeah, that that guy who owns Channel 7 in Perth, you know, he he also um, owns a lot of fossil fuel interests and that's why we don't hear about the climate emergency enough on Channel 7. And I was like, (laughs) brilliant. (laughs) How old is he? Like he's just heard me rant about things, but he managed to pick that up, like he's 12. Um, That's amazing. Yeah, but we we all need to kind of, I think, yeah, 
try and um, get those critical thinking skills because, yeah, you have to be able to see those vested interests. And, yes, there are a lot, you know, the Murdoch media and, yeah, the, the West Australian and Channel 7 in West Australia is owned by Kerry Stokes who has a lot of fossil fuel interests. Mm. And so, yeah, that's why you don't hear about, you know, the link, the link between um, the climate emergency and the burning of fossil fuels. So, yes, not, not every media outlet is pure and good, but there are some good ones out there. Um, and then you have organisations like ours at Human Rights Watch who are also giving you facts and verified information that we have investigated and researched and come to conclusions um, through a long process of, of verifying what, what you know, we know to be true. So, yeah, you can use good news sources and then supplement it with with the work of organisations like Human Rights Watch or Amnesty or the Climate Council or Greenpeace or reputable groups that, you know, know their facts and figures when it comes to certain issues, particularly on human rights and climate change. So in this climate of mistrust of news outlets and in general facts, I suppose, how do you keep people engaged in yeah. with less I would say digestible stories, things that are really confronting or that people don't want to hear because they're reminded of the dire situation that we're in, even in terms of just climate change in Australia. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing I, you know, the message I try and get across is that you just can't afford to look the other way, you know, like part of the reason that I left journalism to to do work on climate justice and climate emergency is because I realised that, you know, I'd spent 20 years reporting on human rights crises all over the world, but this is the human rights crisis that's going to impact my children and the people and the places that I love, you know, so quite quite selfish really. But it just hit me like a, a train one day when I realised, wow, that you know, this really is a serious threat to, to, to the future well-being of our planet, of, of my children. And so when you think of it like that, um, you know, that might encourage people to to start listening and start mm. thinking about what they can do. Because I think, you know, we think that, you know, okay, it's going to impact like poor people in Bangladesh and Africa. And, it, you know, it's not like we're seeing the impacts of climate change here in Australia. And we know that if we don't keep warming to 1.5, then we could reach these really dangerous tipping points that, that will just cause catastrophic damage to, to our planet. So I think that, you know, we have to really kind of call out that belief that, oh, you know, I don't have to worry about this. I don't have to think about it. Like you do have to think about it. And I think also just that, just keep reinforcing that idea that you can have an impact, you know, like that mm. that you can do something about it, like not to feel powerless or overwhelmed. And the only way we're going to make things better and have less to worry about is if we all do something, you know, that's why I always say like just doing something doesn't include sh sharing something on social media, you know, doing something involves like joining an effort, turning up at something, like at calling your MP, writing a letter, you know, volunteering at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre or, you know, with Greenpeace or Amnesty or, you know, there's so many things you can actually do to make things better. And, yeah, I think if you just move into that mind frame, then you'll you'll start feeling better about the state of the world because you'll begin to see the solutions. And this is it. We know what needs to be done for a lot mm. of these issues. It's just, you know, the solutions are being blocked by either big, powerful corporate vested interests or, you know, authoritarian governments. We shouldn't accept that. We should accept that, you know, a, a better existence is, is you know, out of our reach because, you know, a very small minority of vested, you know, powerful vested interests doesn't want it to happen. You know, I think and it's only by people working together that we'll be able to confront these big issues and and make the change that we need. So what has been uh, like a story or a couple of stories that have challenged your impartiality as a journalist? 
So, I mean, this is it. I didn't really believe in being impartial as a journalist. Like, it, I don't think that in, impacted my, you know, ability to tell you the facts and the truth. It's like, yes, you know, the Syrian government um, dropped this barrel bomb or the Israeli government fired at this apartment block and killed these children or, you know, the Saudi government dropped these bombs on this particular house in Yemen. You know, I gave you all the accurate facts and figures that I'd verified by by being there and interviewing people and, and getting the information. But, you know, I was very kind of open with the fact that, you know, I'm against war crimes, I'm against the bombing of uh, children and, you know, and I, I think refugees should be treated fairly. So, you know, I wasn't kind mm. of, yeah, going to just not take a position on that. You know, I I yeah, I uh, b- believe in, in people's human rights being upheld. And, yeah, I'd often kind of um, d- do what I could in a situation to make things better. So, you know, I was working in um, uh, Greece during the refugee crisis in 2016 when, um, you know, I met this Syrian refugee on a beach, this old man called Nazir, who was, you know, in his 60s and he had a disability, he couldn't really walk and he'd fled his home in Syria and was trying to get, you know, uh, find a safe life in uh in Europe but he'd lost his family on the crossing and he was all alone he had nothing but kind of 20 euros in his pocket that someone had given him and he was carrying his family Quran in a plastic bag and he was crying on the beach and you know I'd been told by the 730 report you have to find a, a Syrian family follow them to um the main port in Lesbos and then you know we want to film you know fi- film them kind of doing that journey and getting on the boat um so I was kind of confronted with you know what what should I do here like as a journalist I have these instructions to get this particular story today but here's someone who desperately needs help so you know I made the decision with my colleagues on the ground um my colleague Fuad who was our producer and Aaron the cameraman they weren't going to just kind of leave this crying desperate man on the beach and, and not do anything to help him yeah. um because he at least 50 kilometers from Mytilene where the ferries to Europe left from so we um put Nazir in our car we bought him some food and water because he hadn't eaten or drunk anything for three days you know as he hid in the bushes where the people smugglers hid them in Turkey before they got on these boats to go to the um, Greek islands and yeah we we started trying to um get in contact with the Red Cross to see if they had any reports of of people who you know who were missing him we'd let him stay at a hotel we gave him clothes you know um and we filmed it so we you know we were doing what the ABC asked which was get, get the story and this was you know this was a real live event that was happening but we also went out of our way to help him. You know, I'd always say like I was a human being first and a journalist second. So whenever I came across situations like that in the field, I'd always do the right thing because otherwise, you know, you, you'll never sleep at night. Um, and, I, you know, a lot of journalists have PTSD because they might have, I think, um, you know, have had instances where they wish they might have done things differently. Um, so I guess I never wanted to have, have, have those second thoughts. I always just wanted to, you know, do what felt right. Yeah. And, yeah, we we didn't find Nazir's family that day, but um, we safely got him to Athens. We helped put him in a, a, a camp where he was, you know, given shelter and food and got him a phone. And then, yeah, we um, helped track down his family on Facebook and then filmed them reuniting in Germany like a month later. So, oh. you know, we got an amazing story out of it, um, but we did the right thing, you know, as human beings. So, yeah, and some of my colleagues criticised what I did and said, oh, you know, you crossed the line, you went too far, you know, you weren't, that wasn't your role, but it's like you've got one life, you know, why Why would you Why would you not help someone if you can? You know, like, you know, if we hadn't helped Nazir, who knows what would have happened to him, you know. Do we know what been... happened to Nazir? Yeah, now he's living in Germany with his family because we found them and, uh, yeah. 
Amazing. Um, so I'm still friends with his son on Facebook. Um, but, um, yeah, you know, he could have just ended up kind of homeless on the streets and, and yeah, in Athens without speaking any English. And, yeah, we know there's a lot of really de- desperate people who who didn't have good outcomes um, as a result of that, that mass refugee exodus. So, yeah, I always think you have to do, you know, do the right thing, be on the right side of history. Well, I think everyone listening will agree that you did the right thing for Nazir. So doesn't matter what your colleague said. <laughs> <laughs> and I wrote about it in my book, so I didn't aim them. It's good to rock the boat a little bit. So what would be your advice then to young aspiring journalists or activists? I think to just push the boundaries consistently, you know, I think this is it. Like they will try often in journalism to to, to make you like this boring robot, but, you know, mm. journalism is telling people stories. Like your trade is people, you know. You have to be able to relate to them and care about them and give a shit about their lives because otherwise I think you just number one, you'll be a really boring journalist. And number two, yeah, I think you'll just, uh, you'll never actually get to the heart of the matter, you know. So you have Mm. to actually genuinely care and not be afraid to show you care. And uh, yeah, you'll you'll probably come across some old school editors and bosses that'll, you know, kind of tut, tut, tut about it. But on the whole, um, yeah, we need more people on this planet who, who give a shit and then do something about it. You know, that was kind of um, always my desire. And I think, kind of unashamedly earnest and think that we can and should change the world and I've been you know I think people keep kept thinking I'd grow out of this but um you know I'm 38 on Monday and I still feel the same so it just has to be a burning desire to make things better whether you're a journalist an activist you know a business person there are so many ways that people can contribute to making this world a better place and yeah we just need more people to to think that way because it's the only way that there's going to be actual real lasting change Love that. Thanks, Sophie, for being on the on the podcast. Oh, no worries. Thank you so much for having me. And, uh, yeah, thanks to everyone who's stayed this long and listened to, to this. <laughs> Bye. This podcast was produced by Zoltan Fetcho and the Cleopatra's Bling team with original music by Cameron Alva. If you liked the show, share it with a friend and leave us a few stars on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you're signed up to the newsletter on cleopatrasbling.com to keep up with the newest updates on all things Cleopatra's Bling. Next time on the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. When I'm typing on my laptop writing a song or another story, I kind of made that connection and I was like, well, this is why I have this like innate feeling inside of me to tell stories and to use my words. Until next time, stay curious.